we decided that we would become experts in rehabilitation for people who have been on a ventilator. And we became really good at that. Success in small community hospitals. Today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast, sponsored by USA Senior Care Network. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today, I'm talking with the CEO of one of the smallest hospitals in the country about how independent community hospitals can have a big impact on the lives of their patients. But first, let's see what's making headlines in healthcare. With Beyond the News, here's Nick and Sean. Hey, everybody. This is Nick Hutt. Sean and I just discussed surprise billing on the air a couple of episodes ago, but we're revisiting it today because a new rule was just handed down. And it's generated a fair amount of controversy in the hospital sector. Uh, This rule had been highly anticipated because it lays out a a brand new process, specifically an arbitration process, by which out-of-network payments from health plans to providers will be determined in some circumstances starting next year. Basically, in the various scenarios in which patients will be protected from owing out-of-network cost-sharing amounts, the balance that the insurer owes the provider will be determined either during a 30-day negotiating period between the parties, or if that doesn't work, via what they're calling a new independent dispute resolution process. So Sean, no one in the healthcare policy analysis realm has a better sense than you do of the provider perspective on hot button topics like these. What do you think the concerns are? So yeah, Nick, thanks. Um, So, you know, they say no news is good news. Well, we got news and it's not good news. (laughs) Based on my preliminary review, of the latest interim final rule, it appears that the guidance for independent resolution dispute entities will will be to consider the qualifying payment amount, which generally is the median rate for the given service in a specific market, as the relevant payment amount in most circumstances. To deviate from the signed PA, the burden of proof will be on the provider to show why a different rate should be applied to the service. So that's a pretty heavy lift for providers in that dispute process. It sure is. And to provide a little bit of context, as you know, and as many industry stakeholders may know, the legislation behind these regulations called the No Surprises Act was a result of a rather drawn out process in Congress, a several year process. There was a fairly pitched, I would say, lobbying battle in which insurers lobbied for a rate setting approach to determine out-of-network payments in these scenarios, while providers push for an arbitration approach that would allow for consideration of factors such as teaching status, case mix, and a number of other factors in calculating these payments. And they got that arbitration process like they wanted, but the language in these new regulations seems to set up more of a rate-setting approach than they would have liked, where factors that the provider may want to offer up for assessment in determining the payment, again, those can be considered but it doesn't sound like they'll be given especially strong consideration. Yeah, that's true, Nick. It is an interim final rule, though, keep in mind. So there is a comment period. So the ink on the new regulations isn't necessarily dry. Comments on the interim final rule are being considered following the 30 days after the IRF has been published in the Federal Register. So it is important for stakeholders to share their comments with the tri-agencies to be heard and considered for final guidance. Yes, and that's great perspective to keep in mind. So... Uh, there may still be a chance to weigh in and and affect changes to this new rule. Well, thanks, John, for those insights. 
We also want to mention that another section in this new rule is designed to advance price transparency by establishing standards for good faith estimates, which is a terminology straight out of the rule that providers must offer to self-pay patients at the time that a service is scheduled. You can see coverage of that, as well as additional coverage by Sean and me on surprise billing and all other healthcare policy matters at hfma.org news. When you read about innovation in healthcare, health systems and large hospitals are commonly the ones in the spotlight. When small hospitals are at the center of the story, the word struggle is probably in the headline. But some of the best stories I hear at HFMA come from members who work in smaller health systems and independent community hospitals. I got to wondering, what are some of those hospitals doing that the big health systems could only dream of? So recently, I reached out to one of the smallest hospitals in the United States to hear their story. Ellenville Regional Hospital is a 25-bed critical access hospital in the Catskill region of New York. Their president and CEO, Steve Kelly, was kind enough to talk with me about what they've been able to accomplish, not just in spite of, but because of their size. He said one key for Ellenville has been identifying opportunities where they can be a front runner. We're surrounded by upstream hospitals in the larger cities, and we have transfer relationships and we transfer people to higher levels of care when they need that, which often they do. If they need a ICU level of care or major surgeries, those are things that are not done in a primary hospital. So we become the access point to get them to where they need to be to have the appropriate care that they need. And then we often receive those patients back when they're done with their acute stay And in many cases, they're still too debilitated to be able to go home. And we do the final rehab, which again is low tech. It has a lot to do with physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, swallowing therapy, and help people get them. It's been particularly interesting in the year of COVID. So you think of COVID as people being in ICUs on ventilators. And here in New York, we were hit first. We were hit really hard. And about 80% of the people that went on ventilators uh, didn't make it. They, they died. But of the 20% who did survive, after they came off the ventilator, it'd be like Rip Van Winkle being asleep in the mountains for well, 20 years, maybe not 20 years, about two weeks. And so we decided that we would become experts in rehabilitation for people who I've been on a ventilator and we became really good at that. And rehab people, when they come to us, they're not able to sit up. They're not able to feed themselves. They can't move their arms and legs. Some cases it was difficult speaking, difficult breathing. And we've gotten every single one of those patients back home. We've also started a program for long haulers. Long haulers is a huge problem. A lot of people who have had COVID and have residual effects that go on and on and on, they have brain fog, respiratory issues, neurological issues, all kinds of issues. And we've developed a program for them. And it's low-tech, outpatient, done by our physical therapy and rehabilitation department. And I'll give you an example. There was a 61-year-old woman who had COVID earlier this year in February and March. She survived COVID, but was very debilitated afterwards and continued to get worse and worse. She developed a wasting syndrome, 
and lost about 30 pounds. And she came to our program and she actually was here briefly overnight, I think, for an observation because she, she was saying goodbye to her friends and family. She, she expected that she, her organs would shut down soon and she would die. And we turned her around and helped her to see things differently and got her moving again. And today she's mostly recovered. She's out of our program, going about her life. Just a complete success story. It's just really, really great. So our goal is to be looking at outcomes and figuring out where can we improve outcomes. And that's sort of the innovation that we're looking at. And then we look at processes after we figure out what we want to be the goal for outcomes rather than just looking at processes. And in healthcare, we have talked about continuous improvement and improving the processes. And, and I think that we have overemphasized that and that has caused us not to innovate very much. I think what's happened is we've focused on small incremental improvements of process rather than bracket shifts of improvement and outcomes. And so here we've put a lot of effort into focusing on improving outcomes and then kind of backing into it as far as the process. And what do we need to change in the process to have a major impact and outcome, a major improvement in outcome? And so, you know, an example of that is uh, how long it takes to, to do an ER visit. If you look at quality from a patient's standpoint, their biggest complaints about emergency services is how long they take. You know, in the United States, the average length of stay in New York visits about four hours and seven minutes. And I would suggest that in larger organizations, they're on the longer side of that average. And in smaller ones, we might be a little quicker. And when I got here and started measuring that, I found out that we were about three and a half hours and everyone was ecstatic here because they thought that, you know, we're better than average. And I wasn't very impressed. I thought we could do it a bracket shift better. And I thought we could do it in half of that amount of time, a hundred minutes instead of 200 minutes. That's fast. And so we went through and did some interval analysis and some other things. And we were able to get down to a hundred minutes as an average length of stay. And not really just for like our best week or our best month, but we've done that for 13 consecutive years. I think that's something that we're able to do in rural areas because we're small and we can. We don't have lots of layers of administration and process in the way. What's interesting is, you know, for like our rehab, inpatient rehab, I went down and talked to the nurses and the therapists and I said, listen, you know, I would really like to improve the physical functioning of our patients. And I'd like you to come up with a tool to measure functional outcomes. And then I want you to improve that. And they were really unhappy, actually. They said, you know, Mr. Kelly, we're getting the best outcomes that we could have right now. And we have really high patient satisfaction. And you know that because you walk around the hospital all day and you mooch food everywhere you go. And we always have the best food because our patients are bringing us bread and cakes and cookies because they're so happy, which I had to agree with because they really do have the best food there. And a lot of homemade stuff, which is really good. And they said, we're working as hard as we can. Why can't you be happy when things are the best that they could be? And, you know, I'm just really not a very happy guy. And I made them do it anyway. And after six months, they came and showed me the results. And they told me how wonderful they were. I said, you know, I think they could be better. And then they said to me, they said, Mr. Kelly, you know, 
I don't think you understand what you're asking us to do. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you are asking us to deviate from the standard of care. If we deviate from the standard of care, we're putting our licenses at risk. We're putting the hospital at risk and we're putting our patients at risk. And then I understood what the real objection was. And I said, okay, I got it now. I understand you're worried about the standard of care. So I said, there's a couple of ways to look at the standard of care. One way of looking at the standard of care is thinking of it like a pull-up. One of the most difficult exercises that people do in a gym where they pull their whole weight up and they try to get their chin over a bar. And it's really hard. Most people can't do it or can do maybe one or two pull-ups. And they pull as hard as they kind of get to chill over the bar and make it to that standard of care. So, you know, that's not how I look at it. I I look at the standard of care as the floor that we stand on as we stretch to reach to the ceiling to get to the highest possible outcome that we could get. I said, so I expect that we're going to be doing the standard of care. That's the bare minimum. But I would submit to you that the 80-20 rule applies to healthcare like it does pretty much everything. 20% of what you do generates 80% of the benefit for the patient. I want you to figure out what is the 20% that's generating most of the benefit for our patients. And I want you to do more of that. And let's see how it goes. Well, they said, well, of course we could do that. You're right. Yeah, I know we could do a little better. And they figured out how to substantially improve the outcomes of our patients. We looked at it a year later, and they had improved it by 16%, the functional strengths, measurable strengths of our patients based on the tool that we used. That's pretty amazing. This is so interesting to me. We talk a lot about, you know, rural health systems, rural hospitals struggle. And I don't doubt that that's true. But it also feels like that's where some really good work is going to get done because maybe you can focus on those things. Well, if you think about it like this, as a primary hospital that's working with primary doctors and providers and trying to help connect people to their health, which also is making sure that they're getting regular checkups and that they're addressing concerns that they may have early enough and that they're addressing the behavioral and mental health issues that are often overlooked. And that we're helping them to get really good primary health care and coaching them to have better health. I think in the long run, there will be a huge savings that will come from the lesser needs for major, major type cases that are very, very expensive. These are the kinds of things that we're working on. You want to know, know, what are we doing in rural health care? I think there's always a bit of a feeling that maybe we're backwaters and we're not really doing that much. And in some cases that may be true, but I think in a lot of cases, there's a lot of really good work that's going on in rural America that doesn't get seen. We're kind of unsung heroes. And I don't know that we need to be heroes. I think this is just what we should be doing. Yes, thank you so much. This has been great. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. By 2030, all baby boomers will be older than age 65, and that's significant for several reasons. First, life expectancy has increased in their lifetimes. When they were born, average life expectancy was 63. Today, it's 79. However, this population is also more likely to have certain chronic conditions, such as diabetes and hypertension. 
So caring for this population is something we need to look at closely and of course consider how Medicare comes into play. Here to discuss this unique population is Rita Marty, Senior Director of Hospital Partnerships for USA Senior Care Network. It's been kind of the saying for years, at least the amount of time that I've been in this healthcare space, that there needs to be collaboration between providers and payers. And now more than ever, that is really true. Your statistic for 2030 is right on. I actually recently read something that said seniors 65 and over will outnumber those individuals below the age of 65 for the first time in our country's history. So we're moving in that direction. And the question becomes, how can we keep these seniors insured with the highest level of Medicare coverage? And that's where, Erica, we come into play, USA Senior Care Network. Our program was designed with one goal in mind, and that's keeping Medigap affordable for the future. What does that mean in terms of healthy seniors? Well, one, we know that people who are uninsured or don't have full coverage might delay necessary care because they fear the unknown out-of-pocket expenses. Medigap coverage is the highest level of Medicare coverage because it says what it does. It fills in the gap, which would normally be the senior's financial responsibility. So in knowing that they have full coverage, this grouping of seniors is going to feel more comfortable getting the health care that they need. Also, you know, I want to be able to afford Medigap in the future. And like I said, the collaboration between payers and providers will be crucial when it comes to caring for these seniors. What is the provider organization's role here? We delight in partnering with hospitals all across the country. Our program represents over 10 million Medigap patients. So we're in every market in the USA. And what we seek to do is really to partner with one health system per market that's rural or urban. Wherever we have patients, we want an in-network hospital. And we channel steer those patients to the in-network hospital. And from the patient's standpoint, they understand that by using the in-network hospital, it's going to help keep their premiums affordable for the future. From the hospital standpoint, they're giving up a slight discount, and that ultimately means savings to the insurance companies, which are able to put that towards keeping a lid on premium increases. You know, it really is a collaboration. I love my job for many reasons, but the top reason is because there's something in it for everybody. Everyone benefits with our program. The senior gets to keep insurance affordable for the future, and that's for all of us for decades to come. The hospitals are receiving the extra volume and the revenue, both inpatient and outpatient, and the insurance companies are able to retain those Medigap patients, which again is the highest level of coverage, which consequently benefits the hospitals because it's a fully insured patient. Thank you very much for joining me today to discuss this topic. You're welcome. My pleasure. 
USA Senior Care Network brings together Medicare supplement insurance carriers and quality healthcare facilities in a nationwide network for Medicare supplement policyholders. Their innovative network benefits everyone by managing costs, keeping premiums affordable for a growing senior population, and channeling these Medigap policyholders to participating hospitals. Thousands of credentialed hospitals and other medical facilities have contracted with USA Senior Care Network to gain patient volume and revenue on inpatient and outpatient procedures and services. To learn more, visit usascn.com. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks this week to our sponsor, USA Senior Care Network. We have some great guests and interviews coming up, so make sure to subscribe to get all of our episodes. And if there's anything you want to hear about, we want to know. You can reach out to our team anytime at podcast at hfma.org. How did I mess that up?